Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the Rashi Shear, which is still online because we are still in lockdown, but we are still learning Torah together. And we are up to Pasuk Kaf Aleph of Perak Kaf Chet. And it will be helpful to go back a few Pasukim to Pasuk Kaf Aleph. So, uh, actually, before that, sorry, that's where we're up to. Um, I meant to Pasuk Yud Chet. So after his dream, So Yaakov woke up early in the morning, he took the stone which had been under his head, and he set it up as a pillar, and he put oil on it. We don't really know that for our purposes now. And then Pasuk Kaf, that's where really this section starts. Yaakov made an oath. Leymar saying, Now, as Rashi will say, or not explicitly, that what Yaakov is doing is basically going through what Hashem said to him in Pasuk Tet Vav. Hashem said, anochi imach, I will be with you, ticha, and I will guard you, ticha, and I will bring you back, Kilo I won't leave you. And now, Yaakov basically says, if you do all those things, and Yaakov will sort of explain them one by one, then, well, we'll leave the then until a little bit later. So what he said in Pasuk Kaf was, if you be, Hashem will be with me, Elokim imadi, Ushmarani, and he will guard me, like he said in, like Hashem said, Ushmaticha, I will guard you. And then Yaakov said, Benatanli lechem le'echol ubeget le'elbosh, and Rashi went out of his way to say that's Yaakov's understanding of Hashem's promise, Lo I will not leave you. And then Yaakov continues in Pasuk Kaf Aleph, and that's where we got to last week. And Pasuk Aleph, Kaf Aleph, he says, V'shavti v'shalom el beit avi, v'haya Hashem li lelokim. And I will return in peace. This is all part of if, if all these things happen. If I return in peace to the house of my father, and if Hashem is to me as a God, and then uh, a little bit of a spoiler, but we're going to get there soon, Rashi would translate the first letter of the next Pasuk as then. So if all these things have happened, then I will do such and such. But we're still in Pasuk Kaf Aleph going through what are all these things that need to happen. So the next one is Vashavti Bashalom. I will return in peace, says Rashi, Kamosha Amar Li Hashem, just as Hashem said to me, Vahashivoticha Elha Adama, I will bring you back to the land, to the ground on which you're currently staying. So as part of Yaakov saying, if you keep all these promises. Now, by the way, we said last week that Yaakov is not saying that God wouldn't keep his promises, but we showed from Rashi at the beginning of a Yishlach that Yaakov is worried that he, he, Yaakov, won't deserve that the promises will be kept. 
because Yaakov himself, perhaps he will sin and lose merit, and therefore he can't rely on Hashem's promises. So that's why he's going through. If it turns out that these promises are fulfilled, then the following will happen. Now, interestingly, Yaakov has changed the word here slightly, or to be honest, he's changed the grammar. What I mean he's changed the grammar. Hashem said, Vahashivoticha, I will bring you back. And he also said, um, Ushmarticha, uh, uh, I will guard you. And when Yaakov referred to that one, Ushmarticha, I will guard you, he said, Vashamreini, and you will guard me, just as Hashem said, I will guard you. So Yaakov uses, in that case, basically the same grammatical form as Hashem used. However, in this case, Hashem had said, Vahashivoticha, I will bring you back. I will cause you to return. It's a hifil. But Yaakov, he replaces that with the word in the kal, the shavti, I will return. Not that Hashem will make me return. In other words, in this case, um, Rashi really highlights to us the distinction between Hashem's words, the hashivoticha, and Yaakov's words, the shavti, I will return to show that Yaakov understands that an action that he will take is dependent on him. Um, he understands that he has Bechira, he's read the Rambam, he knows Jewish philosophy, he understands that he has free will. So when it comes to Hashem looking after him, well, Hashem will look after him. But when it comes to Hashem bringing Yaakov back, Yaakov knows that it's up to him whether he comes back or not. And that's why instead of Yaakov saying, if you bring me back, rather he says here, the shavti, and if I come back. In other words, I understand that the action will depend on me. And the point I'm making, I hope I'm not, I hope it's clear and I hope I'm not laboring it too much, is Rashi in his words here, when he says the shavti corresponds to vahashivoticha, Rashi is drawing our attention to this change of grammatical form and the fact that Yaakov is not saying, if Hashem brings me back, but rather, if I come back. Okay, the next thing that Yaakov says is Bashalom, in peace. If I come back, in peace. Now, Rashi explains what Yaakov means by peace. Shalem min hachet, shalom elmad midarche lavan. Shalom in peace, or better still, perhaps in completion or in perfection. All those words. Um, are the same in Hebrew, um, which tells us a lot about what we understand by peace. Peace is when the world is complete, when the world has reached a level of perfection. Also, the word l'shalem, to pay someone back, comes from the same idea, because if you owe someone money and then you pay them back, you've completed the situation, and you've rendered the respective bank accounts of you and the other person perfect. Anyway, says Rashi, what does it mean in peace? It means shalem minachet, perfect in respect of sin or perfect from sin but I will not learn from the ways of Lavan so two things really that Rashi is rejecting that you might have thought Shalom means you might have thought Shalom means unblemished um, unattacked um, not fighting with anybody so perhaps the reason Rashi doesn't go down that road is to say Shalom means as it usually does in peace, as in with no enemies, with nobody trying to hurt me, is because that's already been covered. When um, Yaakov said in Pasukav, Ushmarani, uh, uh, sorry, Ushmarani, that you will guard me. 
Now, what does guarding mean? Presumably it means guarding him from enemies, guarding him from people who might want to take a swipe at him. So the physical danger has already been covered by an earlier word in Yaakov's statement. So now Shalom, therefore, cannot be a function of Hashem guarding him, because that's something else. So what does it mean? It means Shalem Minachet. It means perfect on a spiritual level, not on a physical level. Now, in which case, straight away, we have the obvious question. Um, I mentioned just before in the previous word, but there's an issue of Bechira, there's an issue of free will, that Yaakov always has free will. So how can Yaakov say to Hashem, please keep your promise and bring me back free from sin? So that's why Rashi has to qualify it. It doesn't mean that you make me perfect and you make me sin free, because only I, Yaakov, can do that. But what you can help me with is shalom el mad midarche lavan. So that I do not learn, or that I will not learn, from the ways of lavan. Interestingly, it's clear from Rashi that Yaakov knows that lavan is going to be a very, very difficult customer. It's not clear how he knows that. It's not clear to what extent lavan's evil ways are known to Rivka and Yitzchak. Um, even Yitzhak and Rivka, who sent him to Lavan's house. But Rashi has an understanding that Yaakov read the Chumash and he knows that Lavan is a trickster par excellence. And he's therefore worried that he will be tempted to learn from the ways of Lavan. And he um, asks Hashem to keep the promise that not that he will not sin, but he will not learn from the ways of Lavan. Now, you might say that's also subject to Bechira. Whom you learn from, what you learn, is also up to you. I hear that, and maybe that's a slightly weak point in the way I'm trying to explain it, but at least you can ask Hashem not to put you in a situation where you learn from the wicked ways. It just occurs to me now, by the way, that one of the most famous Rashis in the whole Chumash is um, when Yaakov sends a message to uh, Esau, and he says, Im Lavan Garti. At the end of the story, he's left Lavan's house. I'm jumping ahead of Hosedra. And he says, I have dwelt with Lavan. And Rashi famously says, Garti is an acronym, sorry, an anagram of Tariyag, Tofreshud Gimel, meaning 613. So, um, I, I dwelt with Im Lavan Garti, the Tariyag Mitzvot Shamarti. I left, lived with Lavan, but I kept the 613 mitzvot. Uh, in other words, this promise was fulfilled, but Hashem arranged that he made sure that he did not learn from the evil ways of Lavan. And now let me just move your screen so I can see if anyone wants to ask a question or make a comment. Um, then Rashi says on the words, Vahaya Hashem li lelokim. <coughs> now, what does it mean that Hashem will be to me as a God? And the obvious problem is, well, Hashem is God for everyone, everywhere, under all conditions. So, and furthermore, um, no, 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 furthermore. That was part of what Hashem said. Hashem said, I will be with you. Didn't say exactly that I will be with you as a God, although he had said that previously, as we will see in just a moment. So what does it mean that Hashem says, I will be to you for a God? How does Yaakov understand that? So Rashi is going to answer that question by giving the interpretation of what it means, and it means this, that he will cause his name to, as it were, rest on me from beginning to end. What does that mean? 
that no imperfection should be found amongst my children. And then if uh, we'll, we'll get to the next part of Rashi in just a moment. But so we have two things to say here. First of all, that number one, that Hashem will be to me for a God means that his connection to Yaakov will be such that Yaakov's next generation, the children whom he raises, will all be, today we would say, on the derech. I think I've mentioned before, it, it's quite uh, intriguing how Rashi mentions in a few places that Yaakov was desperately worried that he would have a child who didn't follow in his way. Now you can say it in a simple, uh, there's a simple historical reason for that, because his grandfather had children who didn't follow in Abraham's ways. Yitzchak had a child who didn't follow in Yitzchak's ways. Yaakov wants to be the one who overcomes this burden. But more than that, as we, as we said last week, Yaakov's function as the third generation of the Jewish people is to raise the first Jewish family. A family where everyone identifies as Jewish, again to use the modern parlance. And Yaakov is desperately scared at various times, as Rashi brings out, that that's not going to be fulfilled in him. And here we have, I think, the first reference to that fear of Yaakov's, and that if he has a child who is a psul, who is blemished, who is not following in Yaakov's ways, that will mean that Hashem is not Yaakov's God. Because Vahayah Hashem Lila Elokim means Sheyachol Shemo Alai Mitchilav Adsof, that Hashem's name will rest on me. If Hashem is your God, or then that means you have children who follow in your ways. Which means if you have children who don't follow in your ways, that's not a fulfillment of Vahaya Hashem Lilelokim. Now, how does Rashi get that idea? Where does this idea of Hashem being Yaakov's God come from? So it comes from this. As was said, Asher Dibarti Lach, which I said of you. Now, when did Yaakov, Hashem say that? Hashem said that in Pasuk Tet Vav, which is the key Pasuk. Let's look again at Pasuk Tet Vav. It's in the dream. Hashem is standing, as it were, at the top of the ladder. And Hashem says, Behold, I am with you. Yaakov's asked for that to be fulfilled. Ushmaraticha, and I will guard you. Yaakov's asked for that to be fulfilled. Wherever you go. And I will bring you back. Yaakov's asked for that to be fulfilled. El ha'adama hazot, kilo e'ezavcha, because I will not leave you or abandon you. Yaakov's asked for that to be fulfilled, according to Rashi, in the form of the bread and the, sorry, food to eat and the clothes to wear. Ad imasiti et dibarti lach. Now, problem. Yaakov adds another element, which isn't in the original bracha, namely, v'haya Hashem li lelokim, Hashem will be to me for a God. Says Rashi, it is in the original bracha. Says Rashi, that is the fulfillment of the last words of Hashem. Asher dibarti lach. What I said about you. And Ya Rashi there in Tetvav, first of all translated lach as about you, not what I said to you, but what I said about you. And Yaakov, sorry, sorry, Rashi explained that that referred to what. Hashem said to Avraham about Yaakov. Well, to be precise, about part of Yitzchak's children. Hashem said to Avraham, you'll have a son called Yitzchak, and in Yitzchak, but Yitzchak, 
The descendants will be called after you in Yitzchak, i.e. part of Yitzchak. Which part of Yitzchak? Yaakov. So Yaakov's descendants will all be fitting great-grandchildren of Avraham. That is what Yash Rashi explained in Tetvav as meaning Asher Dibarti Lach. And now Rashi says that this, this new idea that Yaakov introduces as something that Hashem has promised him is not a new idea at all. It was there in the previous Pasuk. So again, which means that none of my children will be found to be Pasul. As was said in Pasuk Tetvav, Asher Dibarti Lach which I said about you. And then Rashi now explains again what that refers to. And he says, This promise was promised to Avraham. As it says in Avraham, in Bereshit Yud Zayin Zayin, Hashem said to Avraham that he would be to him for a God and to his descendants after him implying that if the descendants fulfill the uh, legacy of Abraham, if they keep in Abraham's ways, then that's what it means that Hashem will be to you as a God. So, now we can put all this together. Rashi explains, based on what Hashem said to Abraham in Yud Zayin Zayin, which said that if your descendants will follow in your ways, I mean, I'm adding a little bit, but that what is Rashi's intention, that is Hashem's intention, that Hashem said to Abraham, I'll be a God to you, descendants after you, if they, in other words, if they stay wanting to me, me to be their God, if you like. Yaakov now um, interprets, or Rashi says, that's the meaning of the last words of Hashem in Tetvav, which is then used by, by Yaakov when he says, I hope all these promises come true. He transfers and he represents it as and for Yaakov it means that all of his children will be fitting to have Hashem as their God that is what the way Rashi explains the way Yaakov explains the, his own version of the brachat that, that Hashem gave him okay um, now we can go to what happens next because what happens next in Pasuk Kaf Bet is Yaakov concludes his words with Vaha'even Hazot and this stone, Asher Samti Matseva, which I have set up as a pillar, Yehiyeh Bet Elokim, will be a house of God. Vachol Asher Titein Li, and everything that you give me, Aser Asirena Lach. I will take Misa, I will take a tenth and give it to you. Okay. Let's look at the first Rashi. It's a good place to start. Vaha'even hazot. Kach tefaresh vav zu shel vaha'even. This is how you explain this vav of vaha'even. Namely, im li et eila, if you do this for me, ani e'eseh zot. I will do this. The point is this. It's one of those many, many issues caused by the multiple uses of the letter Vav. And one of the reasons I wanted to go back to Pasuk Kaf is because we will see that Yaakov makes a vow at the beginning of Pasuk Kaf. And he says, if you do this and this and this and this and this and this, each of them is introduced by a Vav. 
So if you are with me and you guard me and you give me food and clothes, and I come back and you are my God. And then Posikaf Bet says, and this stone. Now, without Rashi, you might get confused. And you might think, is part of the conditions, is part of what Yaakov is asking to happen in order for something else to happen. So Rashi says, the something else to happen is as he puts it in Rashi's words, if you do this for me, then I will do this for you. So in English, we would use the word then. But in Hebrew, in classical Hebrew, we just use the letter Vav. And it's not clear if it means and, it's like another part of the list, or it's the then clause coming into operation. Says Rashi, it's the then. So everything up till now has been if, and Vah Eben Hazot means then, if you do all those things, then this stone, etc. We'll see what the etc is in a moment. So without Rashi, we would have wondered why, where Vaha Even fits. Now, we probably would have assumed that there'd be an end to the list somewhere, but we might have thought it would be at the next place. We might have thought the next above. We might have thought that's where the then clause begins. So we might have read it as, if you are my God, and if you guard me, and if you feed me, and if you bring me back, and if you are my God, and if this stone becomes a matseva, then I will give you a tenth of everything I have. Says Rashi, that's not how you read it. Posikafet begins with the then part of the deal, of the uh, what Yaakov is sort of offering. But he says, then I will, this stone will be a matseva, it will be Bet Elohim. Now, just by the way, before we understand what Bet Elohim is, um, what's the big deal about Yaakov saying, I will give you master, I will give you a tenth of what I have? Now, this question is predicated on the basic idea that the Avot kept the mitzvot. Um, maybe they kept all of them, maybe they kept some of them, and maybe they kept the positives, not the negatives. That's the Maharal's explanation. But let's assume that Yaakov kept master. Rashi has said that Esau asked Yitzchak a tricky question about master. So it sounds like it was a thing to do. And if it's a thing to do, it's a chiv, it's an obligation. How can Yaakov say, I will give you Masa? Wow, if you do all these things for me, I will give you Masa. So perhaps the answer is based on the chol asher titenli. Yaakov says, everything <coughs> that you give me, I will give a tenth. Now that is way over and above the mitzvah, the requirement of Masa. Masa is only given from produce and only certain produce. Yaakov says, I will give it out of everything. Rashi doesn't actually talk about how he fulfills this. Um, maybe he gives a tenth of his wealth. Maybe he gives a tenth of his children. If you count his children in a funny way to make it only there being only 10 children, when in fact there were 13, and then you can say Levi was given, as it were, to the service of God. That's how you get one in 10. I'm not quite sure how you get from 13 to 10. Anyway. Um, that might explain why Yaakov says, I will not just give Masa in a regular way, but I'll give you Masa v'chol asher titinli. Everything that you give to me, everything that you give to me, I will give Masa from. Now, what does Rashi say about um, what's actually going to happen to this stone which he makes into a pillar? 
And he says, etc. This is the next Rashi. Katargumo. This is like the Targum says. And what does the Targum say? Ahi palach ala kadam Hashem. And that means I will serve on it before Hashem. I will do the avoda, i.e., I will give sacrifices. So Rashi says, in order to understand what it means by this stone, which I've made into a matseva, will be a bet elokim. I notice Rashi doesn't include that in his Divra Matchil. Um, so it could be, he's focusing on the matseva, but what Yaakov says he's going to do to the matseva is make it into a bet elokim. What does it mean to make it into a bet elokim? So we've got at least two questions that I can think of that we need an answer to. Number one is simply, what does it mean? Number two, it sounds like a building. It sounds like you're going to build a shawl. That's really like what, what Bet Elohim sounds like. And how can you build a shawl out of one stone? So Onkelos is brought to answer both questions. What is the nature of the Bet Elohim and how can it be a building? It's not a building. Yeah, Bet Elohim means I will do the avoda there before Hashem, in front of Hashem. Not that it will be the house of Hashem, but I will make it in a very mini way, like a sort of Bet Migdash, in that I will offer sacrifices on this stone. And says Rashi, just in case you didn't get the point, And that's what he did when he returned from Padan Aram. When Hashem said to him, Kum alei Beit El, when Hashem said to him, No, it's time for you to go to Beit El. He said that in Perak Lamad. Hey, Mane Emarsham, what is said there? Yaakov set up a Matseva and he uh, poured on it libations. So there is a slight problem where it says here, Yaakov set up a Matseva. You have to read it as Yaakov had already set up the Matseva. Here, when he had the dream, he set up the Matseva, he went away, he came back, and he offered on that Matseva. Whereas the Pasuk in Lamad Hey Yudalad sounds like he set it up on his return. So you have to read Vayatsev as Yaakov, as Yaakov had already set up the Matseva. And Yaakov, Rashi wants to point out that, that's, that Rashi's interpretation is correct because it's backed up by what happened. When Yaakov came back to Beit El on his return from Laban's house, he didn't build a Beit Halakim, he didn't build a shawl, but rather he offered on that Matseva. So we see, but if that's his fulfillment of his promise now, then his promise is, I will use this Matseva as a place to offer sacrifices, which is what the Targum says, Ahi Palach Allah Kadam Hashem, which is why Rashi uses the Targum now to explain what Yaakov means when he says, um, um, And if you look at Perak Lamad Aleph, Pasuk Yud Gimel, um, Hashem says, this is another time on when he's still in Yalavan's house actually, and Hashem says to him, no, it's time to go. Um, and he says, Lamad Aleph Yud Gimel. Anochi Hakel Beit El, Asher Mashachta Sham Matseva, Asher Nadarta Li Sham Neder. I'm the God of Beit El, where you anointed that stone and you made me a vow. And Rashi says there in Rashi on Lamad Aleph Yud Gimel, Asher Nadarta Li, where you she vowed to me, but Sarich Atal Shalmo, and you need to pay that vow. 
Sha'amarta, that you said, Yihia bet Elohim, that you, it will be the house of God. Now notice Rashi uses the words of the Pasuk, and then Rashi adds his own words. Shatakriv sham karbanot, that you will offer their karbanot. So Rashi there in Lamad Aleph Yud Gibel, which is not the Pasuk that Rashi refers to in his comment here, but it matches perfectly his comment here. Rashi there in Lamad Aleph Yud Gibel makes very clear that when you, Yaakov, Hashem says to Yaakov, when you vow to make it a Beit Elohim, says Rashi, says Hashem to Yaakov, what you meant was to offer sacrifices, which is what Rashi says here as well. Okay. Um, that actually concludes Perak Kaf Chet. So the whole story of Yaakov running away, the dream, the promises, now we have concluded. And, and the scene changes. The scene changes. Yaakov now arrives in Haran. He meets Lavan. He gets immersed in Lavan's household, as we will see. <coughs> so the first posuk of Kaf Tet is Vayisa Yaakov Raglav. Yaakov lifted up his feet and he went to the land of the people of the East. So Rashi straight away says something about Yaakov Raglav. Says Rashi, Having been informed of this good news, that he was assured, he was promised that he would be looked after, Nasa libo et raglav. His heart lifted up his feet. Nasa kal lelechet, and it became easy to journey. Kach mafarish bereishit rabba. This is what is explained in the midrash in bereishit rabba. What is the question? Uh, I think the question is quite straightforward. What is the meaning of this idiom? Yisa Yaakov raglav. Yaakov lifted up his feet. Now, if we can sort of split up different parts of the body and anthropomorphize each of them the Yaakov the main part of the body is not the one that normally lifts up the feet it's normally the feet lift up the rest of the body the feet move and the body goes along with it so we have an odd phrase and and I haven't checked but it could well be that it doesn't occur elsewhere in Chumash that Yaakov's lifted up his feet rather than his feet lifting up him. So why does it say he lifted up his feet? You can also ask the question, why does it bother to say anything at all? It could have just said he went. But so what's this for Yisai Yaakov Raglav? So Rashi has answered, if you like, both questions, why we need to say it and what it means. It means that because he had this good news that Hashem promised to look after him, Nasa libo et Raglav, his heart was able to lift up his feet rather than the other way around, Vanasa Kalalechet. And he became it became easy for him to go. So then we get to Pasuk Bet, Fayar, and he saw Behold, there was a well in the field. And behold, there were there three flocks of the herd. Rovzim Aleha crouching by it. Kimin because from that well, Yashku Ha'adarim, they would make the um, flocks drink. And there was a big stone on the mouth of the well. Okay, so we have a few Pesukim, which is going to deal with this well and stone. By the way, there's a lot of stones which play key parts 
in Yaakov's life. We saw the stone that he, or the stones that he put around his head, which turned into one stone, according to Rashi. And now we have another stone, which plays a significant role. And at the end of Parashat Vayetze, when he leaves Lavan, they make a pile of stones. There's a lot of stones. Anyway, there's also this business about the stone on the well. And as I said, it's going to take up a few pasukim. And Rashi's going to have a lot to say on the subject of grammar. And many of the Rashi's that we're going to come across are grammar related, as is the first one. So, <coughs> the Pasuk says, Min haber hahi yashku ha'adarim. From that well, yashku ha'adarim. Let's look at Rashi straight away on yashku ha'adarim. Mashkim haroim et ha'adarim. The shepherds watered the flocks. And the Pasuk speaks in an abbreviated fashion. Rashi has fixed two problems. The first is the tense of Yashku, and the second is the um, subject of Yashku. In fact, let's deal with the second one first. The subject of Yashku is not there in the Pasuk. They made the, the flocks drink. Who made the flocks drink? So Rashi's added the word haroim. The shepherds made the flocks drink. And the word shepherds has been missed out. And that is what Rashi calls a mikra katsar, or in this case, a mikra diber baloshan katsara. The Pasuk is speaking in an abbreviated loshan. And when Rashi uses that phrase, I think, I think every time, I may be wrong, but I think every time it's a subject of a verb that's missed out. Now, why would the Torah go around missing out words? And if it misses out it, if it misses it out and Rashi needs to put it back in, why did the Torah miss it out? So the idea of a is that the Torah doesn't always need to spell out who the subject is if the subject of the verb is obvious. But Rashi is not the Torah. Rashi is helping us understand the Torah. So even if the subject of the verb is obvious, it won't hurt Rashi to point it out. Now, if the subject of the verb were not obvious, then the Torah wouldn't have missed it out. So it's not like the Torah's dropped a word. It's not like it's a typo. But rather, the Torah works on the basis that if the subject is obvious, then it doesn't need to be spelled out. Who is going to give the flocks water to drink, if not the shepherds? It's not going to be the, I don't know, the, the butcher or the postal worker or the car mechanic. It's going to be the shepherds, because they're the people who give flocks water to drink. So that's one thing that Rashi has fixed. The other is the tense. Now, let's talk about tenses. Hebrew, strictly speaking, doesn't have a present tense. English, you say, I will write in the future, I did write in the past, I either I am writing or I write in the present. English has that unique uh, variety of ways expressing the present tense. <coughs> in Hebrew, anikotev, strictly speaking, does not mean I write, doesn't even mean I am writing. It means I am a writer. Now, we use that as the present tense. Uh, that's why it only has four cases. Um, present and plural, sorry, uh, singular and plural, masculine and feminine, whereas a verb has at least six cases. I, you, he, uh, she, um, we, they, 
sorry, you, plural, masculine, you, plural, feminine, they, plural, masculine, they, plural, feminine, more than six. Um, so the, what we think of as the present tense in Hebrew really isn't a tense. And again, I think, and I didn't check, and it's going to be hard to check this, I think the Torah very rarely, I'm going to say very rarely, just in case it does occasionally, uses what we call the present tense as the present tense. So what does the Torah use instead as the present tense? Usually the future or sometimes the past. And we're going to talk more about that very soon, so I won't say anything more at the moment. But the word yashku looks pretty future. So Rashi says, you know what it means? It means present. It means continual action. So that's why he try, instead of the word yashku, he puts the word mashkim, which is a good old-fashioned, what we would recognize as the present tense. So whereas the Torah uses, rarely uses the present tense, possibly never uses the present tense in the way that we use it, and it will use a future or sometimes a past, Rashi is going to help us understand that this is a present tense in the sense of continual action. Mashkim haroim et adarim means the shepherds were used on a regular basis to be watering the flocks. So, next comment, next pasuk, pasuk gimel. The ne'esfu shama kol ha'adarim, and all the flocks gathered there, the galalu, now Rashi's going to talk about the tense of that word, so I'll just say they rolled, but without being precise about the tense, et ha'even, the stone, me'al pi ha'be'er, from off the face of the mouth of the well. The hishku, and they watered et atzor, the flock, the heshivu et ha'even, and they restored, they put back the stone, al pi ha'be'er limkomo, on the top of the well, back in its place. So the flocks gathered, then they rolled off the stone, which released, if you like, the water in the well. They gave water to their flocks, they put the stone back, and then they went away. That was what they did. We don't yet know why. That's going to come out. So let's see what Rashi says. Rashi says, Ragilim hayu They were accustomed to gather. Because the stone was big. Now, in those seven words, there's actually a lot of powerful stuff in Rashi, which we have to explain. And the first point is another reference to the issue of tenses. The ne'esfu is past tense. You could read it as a one-off action. They gathered their flocks, or literally the flocks were gathered. On that particular afternoon, when Yaakov comes by, the flocks were gathered. Rashi says, no, that's not what it means. Ragilim hayu leheyosef. They were accustomed to gather. It was something they did on a regular basis. We would actually call that, if we're interested in the precise names of tenses, imperfect. It's an action that happened and continued to happen. And it hasn't finished happening. They gathered today. You know what? They're still going to gather tomorrow and they're going to gather the day after. That's why it's an action that hasn't yet been finished. It's a habitualization that they had. Don't think of Ne'esfu as a one-off. They gathered on that particular occasion. But it's important for Rashi, as part of his explaining of the whole process, that they did it on a regular basis. And he expresses that by saying, Regilim hayu leheyasef. Why did they gather? Because the stone was big. Now, spoiler alert here, 
Basically, what they're going to say, and Rashi's going to make clear, is this stone was a brilliant security device because it was so heavy that one of the shepherds on their own, or one group of shepherds maybe, with one flock, could not remove it. It could only be removed when all the shepherds had gathered together because it was so big. And one shepherd couldn't remove it himself, so one shepherd couldn't get to the well on his own and get all the water. So in order to make sure that no shepherd or no groups of shepherds for each flock took more than their fair share of water, they had this system of a very heavy stone which could only be rolled off by a lot of shepherds together. Clever. Now, Rashi's done two things. Now, this story might be familiar and we might realize that the whole point is they can't um, move the stone by themselves. But it's actually Rashi who spells it out for us. Rashi has, made, uh, has explained why the Torah tells us in Pasuk Bet that there was a big stone on the well. He tells us that Yaakov arrives and there's a well and there's shepherds and there's flocks and it's, there's a big stone. Now, the Torah is not a history book. The Torah doesn't need to tell us extraneous details, which means if there is a detail, it's not extraneous. So why do we need to be told there was a big stone on the well? Says Rashi, that's the whole reason that the shepherds were gathered at that particular time. So when the Pasuk said, at the end of Pasuk Bet, that wasn't an extraneous detail. On the contrary, that was the key to understanding the whole process that Yaakov now witnessed and got involved in. Which brings me to the next point. Again, spoiler alert, but it's going to be Yaakov all by himself is going to remove the stone. This is a big deal. It's amazing that Yaakov can do that all by himself. Now, why is it amazing? Because normally it was a stone that could only be removed by either three shepherds or three groups of shepherds. I keep saying that because it's not clear how many shepherds there were to each flock. But one flock's worth of shepherds, whether it was one or a group, couldn't move that stone. Only three flocks worth of shepherds. So it's an amazing thing that Yaakov could do it all by himself. Just by the way, I'll mention here, you think Yaakov sits in yeshiva all day. He's a bit, uh, bit nebuchy, a bit weakly, a bit of a weakling. Turns out he's not. He's as strong as a whole multitude of shepherds put together. That is only going to be apparent if it was a big stone that couldn't be rolled off by a single person. So Rashi has to say it here, that the whole reason that all the shepherds were gathering together was because the stone was so big. So Rashi is setting us up to appreciate how amazing it is when Yaakov will be able to remove the stone himself. So now we come on to the Galilu and they rolled. Says Rashi, the Golalim. What has he done? He's put it into the present tense. So the Golalim, technically speaking, means they are rollers, but we'll understand it in the present tense as we do. The Targumo Umagandrin. And the Targum is Umagandrin, which, for those who understand Aramaic grammar, which I suspect is not very many of us, and it's not me, but is in the present tense. So the Targum translates Vagololo as a present tense verb. Now, um, I think I'll mention at this point that as well as explaining a bit of grammar, there's also um, a classic Rashi of comparing two similar things which are different. 
because the word Golalu appears again in Pasuk Chet. And there Rashi makes the comment, Zematurgam vi Gandarun Atit. And there it has a different translation in the Aramaic. It's a different part of the verb because it's in the future. So we have the word Vagalalu in Pasuk Gimel, and we have the word Vagalalu in Pasuk Chet. Same word, different targum because different grammatical implication. So although this is a grammar Rashi, at its heart is it's a classic Rashi. Two things look the same, but actually there's a difference between them that Rashi explains. In Hebrew, you won't notice the difference. In Aramaic, you will, which is why he brings the Aramaic translation on both occasions, in Pasuk Gimel and Pasuk Chet, to show that they are different. So, Having said this is actually present tense, then Rashi gives his general rule, which actually he said elsewhere um, in Perak Kafdal and Pasuk Memhei, for instance. And his general rule is this. Kol lashon hover, mishtaner ledaber balashon atit, u balashon avar. Something which is in the present tense is changed to speak in the future tense or the past tense. Lefisha kol davar because anything which is in the present tense, tamid kavahaya va'atid lehiyot, always was, and always will be. Now it's not as poetic as it sounds. What it means when I say present tense, I mean the ongoing present, the habitual. Not I'm writing that right this minute, but I am in general writing. Yesterday I was writing. Tomorrow I was writing. I'm always writing. That's what Rashi means by the present tense. The usual activity. So the rolling the stone is something they generally did. They used to do it in the past. They do it today and they'll do it in the future. They've never finished doing it. But it has that element of something that was done yesterday and that element of something that's done tomorrow. And that is why it can be translated into Hebrew in the past tense or in the future tense. But it might mean, even though it looks past or it looks future, it might mean present in the sense of ongoing action. So what happens if it means ongoing action? Ah, that's why we have Rashi. Rashi will tell us it looks, in this case, past, but it means present. Sometimes it looks future, but it means present because it's referring to an ongoing action and the Hebrew language will translate it as a past or a present and Rashi will help us appreciate that it is a present. And you won't be surprised that the next comment of Rashi is really in a similar thing because after having said they removed the stone, then it says v'heshivu et ha'evem, which means they put it back in the past. The heshivu is a past tense. Sorry, heshivu is past and the vav makes it future. Sorry, actually, I should have said that about the golalu as well. Golalu is past, the vav makes it future. But as we've seen, it doesn't really make a big difference whether it's past or future. They're both, in a sense, wrong because it has a present meaning. The heshivu also is past, but the vav makes it future. But Rashi says, Targumo umertivin, which is also present in Aramaic. So the heshivu, past tense verb, the vav makes it future, actually the meaning is present as in ongoing. Notice there's basically three verbs here 
all of which mean ongoing. V'ne'esfu, v'galalu, v'heshivu. In the first case, Rashi spelt out on v'ne'esfu, ragilim hayu leheyosef. They were accustomed to gather. In the second and third case, he doesn't need to say that because you've already got the idea that the process, all bits of it, were regularly happening. Instead, he just gives you the Aramaic translation to show you that it's present tense. So for Vagalalu and Vahishivu, he doesn't need to say Ragilim Hayu, he just says, here's the Targum. And, you know, we've got a bit of time to go. Pasuk Dalad has no Rashi, so let's read it. Vayomalehem Yaakov, Achai, Mayayin Atem. Yaakov said to them, my brothers, from where are you? Vayomru, and they said, Mecharan Anachnu. We are from Haran. So Yaakov's presumably happy because he's like found his destination. And now in Haran, he needs to find his uncle. So he says in Pasuk, hey, hayadatem et Lavan ben Nachor. He said to them, do you know Lavan, the son of Nachor? Vayomru, and they said, Yadanu, we know him. And at this point, I just need to find my text. Um, while I'm looking for that. Um, uh, I think we said last time um, when Yaakov, yep, here we are. when Yaakov, oh, sorry, when um, B- uh, uh, Betuel and Lavan were questioning Eliezer, Lavan spoke before Betuel. And Rashi made a point of that and said Lavan was, he castigated Lavan for not showing respect to his father. And I think at the time I might have given a little drusha on it because there is a drusha on that, that Lavan is the one who doesn't respect his, uh, the, the bond between father and son. He doesn't respect Yaakov's bond with Yitzchak, which is why he tries to stop Yaakov returning to Yitzchak. He doesn't respect the bond that Yaakov has with his own children. Because Yaakov, Lavan is the one who says, um, the, the sons are my sons, the daughters are my daughters. Yaakov, sorry, Lavan is uh, never referred to as Lavan ben Betuel in the entire Chumash, except in one place where it's Yitzchak who refers to him as that. Lavan is always Lavan Ha'arami or Lavan Stam, as if to show that, I mean, this is a drasha, <coughs> but I think it's a pretty good one as if to show that Lavan doesn't have that natural respect that he should have for his father. He's not identified as the son of his father. And look how Yaakov refers to him. He refers to him as Lavan ben Nachor. Nachor was not Lavan's father. Nachor was Lavan's grandfather. Now the Ramban says it's no big deal. People are called the son of their grandfather all the time. And that may be true. But it's interesting that Lavan ben Betuel is not called Lavan ben Betuel because Lavan is the one who does not show respect to his own father. Rashi pointed that out. And on a bigger scale, Lavan is the one who doesn't show respect to anyone's father. And here he is called Lavan ben Nachor, not Lavan, the actual son of his father. And now we go to Pasuk Vav. Rav, can, can, can I just ask on that, if I may, please? Um, it's interesting that Yaakov was the one who said that and you said that Yitzchak was the only one who actually called him Laban ben Betuel. So it's interesting that Yaakov during the talking doesn't refer to him, like still kind of uses the, the bad Laban 
image, yeah. I guess. Or, yeah. I mean, at this point, I must have to say, you can take this drusha up to a point, and you don't. It would be inappropriate to like to draw too much derivation from a drusha. Um, but having said that, um, yes. Um, I mean, you can see easily with the concordance. That's how I got it. That there's only one place where yeah, Lavan is identified with Betuel, and that's by by Yitzchak. Maybe when Yaakov, I mean, if it's appropriate to, to answer your question to like stretch the drasha further, when Yaakov arrives in Haran, which is like Lavan's town, um, he addresses Lavan in the Lavanite way, which is to ignore Betuel. Yitzchak is speaking more theoretically about. Yitzhak has this vision of who Lavan should be, which is why he calls him Lavan and Batur. Maybe. Okay, I think we've just got time to do one more Rashi, which is also very grammatical, but it's quite straightforward. So um, he asked the shepherds, Do you know Lavan ben Nachor? Pasak Vav, Vayomelahem Hashalot, Vayomelahem. Sorry, Vayomru Yadanu is the end of Pasak Hey. They say, Yes, we know him. And then Yaakov says, hashalom lo. Yaakov says, is there peace to him? In other words, how is he? Mashlamcha, how is he? shalom. And they said, peace. In other words, he's doing fine. And then they add a little bit of extra detail. Rachel bito ba'a im Sorry, I should say ba'a in hatzon. And you'll see why that's relevant in a moment. Behold, Rachel, his daughter, ba'a is coming with the flock. So Rashi says, Ba'ah im hatzon, hatam ba'alef. The stress, the stress syllable, is the second syllable. It's the one with the alef, not the one with the bet. The targumo atya, and it's translated as atya, which in Aramaic, which is, our old friend, the present tense. The Rachel ba'ah, and the next time where it says Rachel comes, or Rachel had come, Hatam Lamala Babet. That is, sorry, I didn't check. It's a few Pesukim hence, a uh, couple of, not very many, it's about three Pesukim hence, where it says Rachel had come. But it's the same word, Bet Aleph Hey. It's got the same vowels, Ba'ah. But it's pronounced very slightly differently with the stress on the first syllable, on the Bet. The Targumu Atat. And there it's translated with the Targum, Atat, which is past tense. Harishon Loshon Osa, Vahasheni Loshon Asta. The first one, Ba'a, I'm stressing the uh, differentiation in pronunciation, is present as in ongoing tense, or she is coming. And the second one, Ba'a, is past tense. She has already done something. The problem is quite simple. In Hebrew, if you have a two-letter root, like ba, bet aleph, which means to come, the third-person singular feminine is the same in the present tense and in the past tense. Almost the same. Ba, a, ha, bet aleph, hey, will be the same word, whether it means she is coming or she has come. But there is a difference between the two. And that is where you put the accent. Do you say ba'a, which means she is coming, or ba'a, which means she has come? That is why, by the way, when a Balkorah is reading from the Sefer Torah, we correct him if he makes a mistake. Uh, and he makes a mistake if he changes the meaning of a word. 
And that normally doesn't mean he gets the note wrong or even he puts the note in the wrong place. But sometimes putting the note in the wrong place can change the meaning of the word. This is such a case. So again, I can say, but this is a Rashi teaching you grammar. But it's also what I would call this classic Rashi of distinguishing between two things that look the same but are a bit different. When Rachel actually comes, we read um, for Rachel Ba'a, and here we're reading for Hine Rachel Bito Ba'a, looks the same, but it's different, and Rashi is telling you it's different. Rashi quotes the Targum to show you that it's different, and Rashi explains the grammatical point, which by the way he's explained elsewhere earlier along in the Chumash, in Perak uh, Tetvav. But he makes the point that uh, because the word Bet Aleph Hay could mean she is coming or she has come, Rashi tells you the way to distinguish between the two. Ba'a means she is coming, Ba'a means she has come. And we will stop there, and next week in Yetzirah we will see what Yaakov says to the shepherds. We'll also talk about why he says it to the shepherds, and then we'll talk about him meeting the love of his life and what happens there when he meets Rachel. So I will say thank you very much for your attention. I will, Hashem, I will see you next week. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you so much. Thank you.